Hey, great to see you this morning. Uh, let me take a minute and my, add my happy Mother's Day um, to all of the moms and the grandmas and the, the aunties and the moms soon to be and the um, women that are influencing uh, different people. I can't tell you how significantly changed and transformed my life has been because of so many uh, sweet uh, women and, and moms, mom, my literal mom and mom, mother figures in my life. I'm so grateful for that. And so um, I hope that you were able to enjoy that today. Well, hey, grab your message notes. We are going to jump right in here um, because today we are actually coming to the end of a series that we've been doing on the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's Spirit in our life. So our theme all year is about the Holy Spirit, um, and we're calling it alive in us because the Holy Spirit is alive in the heart and the life of every follower of Christ. And yet what we, I want to suggest here is that the, the most clear evidence, or at least one of the more clear uh, evidences of God's Spirit alive in us is not necessarily some dramatic outward miracle. It's not necessarily some a religious experience. As much as I felt the Holy Spirit moving, it literally drove me to tears as we sing this morning morning, it's not necessarily some outward religious expression. Some of the, the, the most clear evidence is the often under-the-radar work of God's Spirit to transform our lives, to take us from people that all have this sinful nature and transform us into people with the character of God. And that's what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And quite honestly, if you think about it, that's the biggest miracle of all. And so each week, as we've been working our way through the fruit of the Spirit, we've been working on saying this together. Hopefully you've memorized this verse by now. We're going to say it one more time. I've got it up here on the screen. If you've memorized it, you can like put your hand over your face close your eyes. You'll get more points in heaven that way. Um, But for the rest of us, uh, let's just read this verse together one more time. Uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And today is the day you have all been waiting for, because today is the day that we are going to look at the fruits of patience and self-control, right? Perfect. What every mom wanted to hear um, today. So, um, in fact, let's just be real here. Just kind of like an informal poll or maybe confessional. How many of you, just raise your hand if you would, would say at some time in your life, you just might possibly struggle with either patience or self-control. Anybody here? Look around, look at all those hands. By the way, if someone is not raising their hand, next week we're beginning a series on lying in church. You all need to be here. Yeah, practically universal. We all uh, struggle with it. And um, if you are someone that struggles with especially self-control, then you have got to take a look at this little video. It's actually a mom and happens to be a pastor as well, uh, teaching her son a little bit of self-control. Let's see if this is encouraging to you today. What's wrong? No. What's wrong? What happened? No, Why are you mad? Mama, I'll be mad. <laughs> Daniel, why are you mad? When you feel so mad and you want to roar, take a deep breath and count to four.
y'all better? Okay, let's go. Let's go. All right, so there you go. There's the secret to self-control. Uh, let's close in prayer and go to lunch. Everybody just count to four. So mom for the win on that, but uh, don't you wish it was just that easy? I mean, there's some great stuff there, um, but the truth is the issues of self-control and patience are some of the most difficult things that all people, but especially Christians, struggle with. And one of the reasons we struggle with it is because God is so clear that these virtues of self-control and patience are meant to be such a defining characteristic of the follower of Christ. And so we wrestle uh, with this. In fact, let's just kind of lay a little foundation. What does the Bible say about uh, patience? It says so much about it. In fact, in the New Testament, when we're taught, we're taught about the love of Christ and this agape love, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, we're given this list of all the things that love is, and the top of the list is love is patient. This is actually rooted not only in the character of Christ, but in the character of our Father, our Heavenly Father as well. When God introduces himself and explains his character uh, to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, this is what God says. It says, he passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, the Lord, which is Yahweh, I am, I am the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. What's that next phrase? Slow to anger. You could substitute patience there. He's patient, abounding in love and faithfulness. God's character is patient with us. In fact, in the New Testament, where patience, uh, the word patience uh, in English appears uh, about 30 or 40 times, one of the common uses is a Greek word, uh, macrothumia. Macrothumia, it's like a compound word. Macro, you might recognize it. It means like big or long. Thumia means to heat up or be under pressure. So uh, macrothumia means to, to take a long time to heat up. That's what patience is. Sometimes you see it translated as long suffering. I've got a long fuse. And the key to learning patience is ultimately self-control. Check out this beautiful proverb that links the two of them together. Proverbs 16.32 says this, better a patient person than a warrior. Better one with self-control than one that takes a city. And in our culture, we love the, the warrior. We honor the warrior and the one who can take a city. And yet in God's culture, he says, if you do those things without self-control, if you do those things without patience, you are missing the mark. So that's some of what it says about patience, but what about self-control? Let me share another uh, great Proverbs with you. How big of a deal is self-control in our lives? This proverb has just been sitting with me all week. It says this. It says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. It's like the city whose walls are down and are just open to invasion, open to attack from the enemy, is the life that lacks self-control. When we're without it, it's like we might as well just open the gates and say, come on in enemy into our life. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter uh, talks, about, uh, patient, or talks about self-control uh, by even saying it's, it's key in, in the faith, the reason of faith. Why? Because he teaches us that faith leads to goodness, and goodness leads to knowledge, and knowledge leads to self-control. And if you know anything about the author Peter, he was someone who self-control did not come naturally uh, to him. There's a great passage in the book of Titus. I won't read the whole thing, but let me just kind of explain it to you. In the book of Titus, uh, Paul writes to kind of explain some things to, it, the, to the church. And so there's this really beautiful section where he's writing to all the different groups of people in the church. And so he addresses like the elders and the, the, the pastors of the church. And then he addresses the older men of 
the church, and then the older women, and then he addresses the younger men and the younger women, and then he addresses um, masters, and then he addresses, addresses employees or, or slaves, and he gives each one of those different groups a different list that's specific to them, right? If you're an older man, this is what you need to do. If you're a younger man, this is what you need to do. What's fascinating about the book of Titus is all the lists are different except for self-control. Self-control appears on every single one of those lists except to older women for whatever reason. So older women go crazy. Uh, but the idea is it's, it's, it's common to all of uh, those things. And I think Paul writes this because he knew what a big deal it is. As we talk about Paul's teaching on self-control here today. Paul is not writing from a theoretical position. He is writing an autobiographical story. I am so thankful that Paul has given us this scripture in Romans chapter 7 that describes the, the wrestling match in his own soul. He says it like this, for I know what good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. So he says, I've got this sinful nature that dwells in me. Why? Because I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And can you feel the, the, the dilemma and the struggle that he has between this good and this evil that is inside of him? You guys, and this is not some baby Christian. This is not some lightweight. This is the apostle Paul describing what takes place in his life. It's that battle of self-control. There's another quote I heard from a, a message I listened to on self-control from Alistair Begg, a, a pastor. And this is what he said. I thought this was so good, especially for someone who, like me, likes to work in the garden and get all the weeds out of my garden. He said this. He said, self-control is the toughest weed that grows in the garden of our life. Right? And you want to pull those weeds out. You want to get rid of those things. But sometimes they grow back and then you got to hit them again. That is self-control in our lives. In fact, if you got honest with it, let me ask you a question. Who is the person, who is the one person that poses the greatest threat to you consistently following Christ in your life? I want to suggest to you that it's not who you maybe think of right away. It's not your mean boss. It is not your antagonistic neighbor. It is not your disagreeable spouse or your disagreeable children. The person who poses the greatest threat to my daily sanctification is me. Me, myself, and I, the man in the mirror, right? And that's what Paul says. The battle is with self, self-importance, self-deception, self-focus, self-gratification, self-pity, self-reliance, and on and on it goes. So all that to say, and just kind of lay the foundation, that the problem of patience and self-control is a big one. The good news is, is the Bible recognizes that. God recognizes that. So he actually gives us a great deal of teaching about how to overcome and deal with these issues of self-control. Here's the thing. I want to suggest that what the Bible teaches about overcoming self-control issues in your life may be one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of the Christian faith. Because far and away, the most common response to someone who is struggling with self-control, the most common suggestion, the most common teaching, you've heard it, I've taught it, I've heard it, and it is this. If you want to develop a self-control, here's what you do. You try harder. 
you get your act together, people, and you have self-control. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me and, you know, they're dealing with some struggle or some sin or something like that, and my answer to them is some form of try harder. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Go to church more. Join the group. Get your act together and serve. Do all those things. It's one form or another of try harder. If your struggle is lust, learn what it means to bounce your eyes away so that you're not focused on that sexual temptation, but bounce your eyes uh, away. If, if your struggle is, is money and, and, and overspending, then cut the credit cards up and get a budget and stick to the budget. If your struggle is alcohol or some substance, then, then change the triggers in your life. Don't drive by that bar. Don't drive by that liquor store. Choose a new group of friends to hang around. And here's the thing about all that. Every single thing that I just said there can be considered really good advice in the right way. Those can all be very helpful things when it comes to growing in self-control in those and other areas of our life. But they are not the core of what the Bible teaches. And that's what I want us to look at today is really kind of the core of what the, uh, the Bible teaches. And to get to that, here's what I want to do. I want us to go back and I want to examine the passage where the fruit of the Spirit that we've been talking about for these last five weeks, I want to see where that passage occurs in the overall context in the book of Galatians. Because when you understand the context and the bigger argument that Paul is making, I think you'll hopefully be able to unlock um, some freedom that God has for us. So we've hinted at this several times in our study, but today we are going to just kind of go verse by verse through the, the place where Paul is making this argument, where he's talking about the difference between self and God, or flesh and spirit. So what I'm talking about is Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25. I hope you open your Bible up or follow closely along in your outline because I want to see what the Scripture says on this. So uh, Galatians 5, verse 16 begins the argument like this. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That's the New Living Translation. Uh, The the NIV, the way I learned it, says it like this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So there's this key, not just to patience and self-control, but really any of the fruits, and the key is this. It's not my willpower. It's not my willpower. It's God's power. It's not the fruit of try harder. It is the fruit of God's Spirit working in my life. And some of you may be thinking, okay, that's great. I hear you continue to say that, but what does that mean? How do I begin to, to live that? How do I really do that in my life? Well, fortunately, in these next eight verses, Paul continues to unpack that idea with some really helpful explanation of how to walk in the Spirit. So that's what we're talking about, how to walk in the Spirit. And he's describing a difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit, walking led by self, or walking led by God. Verse 17 continues on. It says, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. 
So those two verses, verses 17 and 18, make a couple really important and profound arguments or profound points. And I just want to look at, at these one by one. The first one is one that I've been trying to make for the last 10, 15 minutes already, which is that this battle of the, our flesh is real. And I think if we're honest, we get that. We get that struggle that is real within us. It's what the Bible calls sin. It's what theologians, when they talk about it, talk about the concept of original sin. Or John Calvin talks about total depravity. And what those kind of theological terms mean is the concept is this. From the very beginning that we were created to be in perfect unity and fellowship with God, God also gave us free will. And our great ancestors, ancestors before us, Adam and Eve, chose to activate that free will in rebellion against God. It not only, you know, caused a a rift between Adam and and Eve and God's relationship, but it began to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so we are born with what Paul describes as a sinful nature or a, a flesh. It's passed down to all of us. Now, As you know, or hopefully have figured out, this doctrine of sin is not a popular doctrine in our world these days. Has anybody noticed that? In fact, the overwhelming movement in our culture over the last hundred years, but kind of kicked into gear in the last maybe 10 years or so, is to deny that people are, are sinful, but rather just to embrace my nature as this is who I am. There's nothing wrong with me. This is just who I am. In fact, the, the foundation of postmodern thought, or what you might call post-Christian thought, whatever it is, is, is a view of relativism, right? That, that kind of anything goes. There's no real set truth. There's no real right and wrong. So in popular culture, the argument sounds like this, and surely you've heard it before. Hey, I was just born this way. I was just born this way, so I am going to embrace it. And to do anything else is hateful and intolerant and, you know, leads to all sorts of problems. So whether you use that, hey, I was born this way to justify a sexual behavior or choice, or whether you use it to, you know, describe an alcohol problem or an anger problem, it's the same idea to say, hey, I am just that way. So rather than resist it, whatever primal desires I have, I'm just going to embrace them. Now I'm going to celebrate them and I'm going to promote them to other people as the way of freedom and fulfillment. In fact, the only real moral wrong in this kind of worldview is an intolerance that, that points out that someone else may be doing it wrong. Now here's the deal. This is not me standing up here and being judgmental. This is me pointing out that 2,000 years of historic Christian doctrine is being pushed away and ignored. And we maybe expect that outside of the church, but it's happening in our thinking as well. And so we need to be on guard against that. So just to be clear, things like our race, things like our nationality, your family of origin, your gender, your personality, your appearance, those are things that you are born with. God was active, and he says those are good, and and that diversity is meant to be celebrated and lived out to its full in the church. But our moral behaviors 
are a choice, is what the Bible teaches. Romans 3 says it like this. It's not another super popular verse, but it's a good one. It says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, you may be surprised to hear this. One of my like life verses is actually Jeremiah 17, 9. I don't think my parents gave it to me on my dedication, but uh, this would be quite, a, quite a, a verse. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it? It just acknowledges this idea that we are born with a sinful nature. So that's what the part, a big part of the argument that Paul is making here in verse 17, um, that we are born uh, with the problem of our flesh, okay? So verse 18 teaches another important truth, and the truth is this. This is the way people have dealt with that problem for most of, of human history. Most people, when they get honest, they're like, oh yeah, I do fall short of God, and, and so I need to do something about it. The most common response and answer to that is to come up with some sort of system, some sort of religious system, some sort of behavior, some sort of laws that we think will help to cover those things. So whether you were raised Muslim or Mormon or Buddhist or uh, even many, many forms of Christianity, The message is if you want to please God and cover up this sin, here's what you do. You try harder. You try harder and you suppress those things and you come up with a system of rules and laws and you obey those things. Yet Paul is making this point. Just as living out our flesh is contrary to the spirit, he also says that religious laws as a way to please God and achieve self-control is futile. That is not how you are going to achieve self-control. And this truth is so close to the heart of the gospel. Karis, I loved what you said about I just want to understand the gospel more. This is an area that so many people miss the truth of what the Bible really teaches. And so many people are in danger of missing it. And the Galatians, you guys, were in danger of missing it. In fact, to understand Paul's argument, you really need to understand a little bit about the history and the story that led to the whole book of Galatians in the first place. Because here's how it goes. You remember when we were studying the book of Acts, we talked about how the good news goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In that idea, Galatia, a region that now is in modern-day Turkey, was the ends of the earth. And Paul and his companions took the good news of Jesus to the region of Galatia. And lives were transformed. These mostly, some Jewish, but mostly a Gentile people or many Gentile people began to accept the good news. And they found their sins forgiven and they found that their lives started to be changed by the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life. And Paul plants churches and sets up leaders, and then things are going so great. The church is full of joy and purpose and mission and outreach. And Paul says, awesome, my work is done here, and he goes on to the next place. However, not too long after the apostle Paul and his companions leave, these other religious leaders come in, and they start to say, Paul didn't tell you the full truth. I think it's great that you're accepting Jesus, and I think that's really great, but if you think Jesus is enough— you're missing it. If you think the Holy Spirit is enough, you're missing it. And these were people that were known as the Judaizers because they said, you've got to follow Jesus, sure, but you also have to follow all the laws, especially the Jewish laws like circumcision, which was a hard sell for the Gentiles. 
and dietary laws and festival laws and all sorts of things. And suddenly, here's what began to happen in Galatia. This spirit-filled, joy-filled group of people that were whimsical and outreaching with the gospel began to grow in. And the joy began to go away because that's what law does to us. It burdens us with this idea that there's no way I can live up to God if I don't do all these things. So Paul gets word about what's happening in Galatia. He'd moved on to the next place. He's actually in Ephesus at this time uh, doing the same thing, planting churches there. And he hears about what's going on in Galatia. And he quickly takes out his pen and he takes out his parchment and he begins to write off this letter about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, when you are, un- when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not obli- under obligation to the law of Moses. So Paul's argument and why Paul is so forceful on this and why we've taken way too much time on this is he wants us to know the answer is not the flesh. The answer to self-control is not just embrace the flesh. The answer is also not uh, law. The answer to self-control is to walk by the Spirit to live by the Spirit. So let's power through this uh, real quick. He gives us uh, three things in these next few verses that I think are all very helpful. The first one is this. He says you gotta take an honest inventory of your life. If you're gonna walk by the Spirit, you gotta take an honest inventory of your life. Take a look and recognize where are those areas that I am falling short. This is something that I wanna do and I do and, 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 and is a great thing to do. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of angers, selfish ambition, uh, uh, outburst of anger, I'm sorry, uh, selfish ambitions, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice something very important about that verse, and this is another thing that, that Christians often miss. This verse and these verses were not given to us for us to point the finger at other people. This is not a list for us to get together and say, look how bad all those other people are. This is a list for self-evaluation. Look at how he begins, verse 19. He says, you, not them, but when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. So I won't go through all this, but there's kind of four categories of sinful nature that Paul lists there. There's sexual sins, which we see there. There's uh, idolatry and sorcery. There is uh, relational sins, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, all those kind of things. And then there are what you might call substance abuse issues. And what's so funny is you look at that list and you think, wait a second, that was written 2,000 years ago? Because it, it sounds pretty familiar. In fact, some of you may be thinking, I think he's describing my neighbor, right? Or the kids I go to school with. I think that's about my uncle. No, the point is not to, to look at other people. The point is to look at our life and say, where can I do a self-inventory? And if I want to walk by the Spirit, this is the areas I want to grow in. Next step is this. We recognize that we've got that sin, and I need to believe that God is the one that can truly help me. That, that it's not my willpower, but it's God's power that can bring about the change that I want to see in my life. Galatians 5.22 but the Holy Spirit 
produces. Let's just stop right there. You know the rest of the list. He goes on and he gives us all the love, joy, peace, patience, all those things. But this is what he needs us to know. The Holy Spirit produces that in your life. It is not my work. It is not me trying harder. It is not me following the law. It is me surrendering my life to Jesus Christ, opening my heart up to the Holy Spirit. And there's things that I can do, you know, because that seed then gets planted in my life. And so I want to make sure that it's getting watered correctly. I want to make sure that it's in the, the right environment. You know, all of those things that can help the Spirit to flourish in our life. But ultimately, it's God's Spirit in your life. And to daily surrender to that. How do you do that? The third point is this. We refocus on something better. And when I say something better, we're talking about Jesus Christ. I make the the point of my life, not about me, not about all these other things, but I make the point of my life keeping my eyes on Christ. This is where the the advice that that mom gave to Daniel back in that little video comes in. And the the power in it wasn't counting to, to four, that, that was a great little tool for a toddler. But the power was to say, take your attention off what's bothering you and put it onto something different. And that's maybe what God is saying to you today. Take your attention and put it on me. This is how he wraps up this whole teaching that I said, the fruits of the Spirit fall into this, this section. Verse 24 says this, those who belong to Jesus Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross. They've crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So you might say it like this. The key to patience, the key to self-control is not, is, is not to resist. I mean, that, that's part of it. We want to resist. It's not regret. It's not just me feeling guilty when I mess up. But it's to refocus, to fix my eyes on something better. And this is the teaching throughout the New Testament. Remember Romans 7 where Paul talks about this great battle that is going on in his life. Romans 7 is so helpful. You shouldn't read it without turning the page and reading Romans 8 as well because he begins Romans 8 after this whole thing. I've got this battle inside me. He begins Romans 8 by saying, hallelujah, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then if you go down to verse 5 in Romans 8, he says this. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what? What the Spirit desires. To the Colossians who are struggling with some of the same stuff, Paul says this, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at the place of honor of God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Well, as we wrap this up, uh, and I, I think about this focus, and I think about here on Mother's Day, I think about um, little kids growing up, and they're, they're little, but there's, there's so much for them to experience, so much joy, so much adventure, so much stuff for them to explore and experience the goodness of the world, yet it can all be super scary if you're a little kid, unless your eyes are focused on the right thing, which in this illustration is mom. Keep my eyes on mom. Because with eyes on mom, you know what I can do? I can take a plunge into something that's very scary. And with my eyes on mom, I can learn to do something new, something that seems beyond what I could do. And then I keep my eyes and I I keep following her. And sometimes I'm going to fail along the way, but I keep my eyes on mom because that's where I'm going to get a little help. 
And then you learn those little things and it grows up to the next bigger things. And, and I, I keep my eyes and my ears on mom. And then one day something comes and you think there's no way I even know or am at all equipped to do this. And I keep my eyes on, on mom. And I share that illustration to remind us of how important those moms are. But mom is actually not the point of the illustration. We keep our eyes on Christ. All of that adventure, all of that goodness, all of those fruits that God has in your life come when our eyes are on him and we walk by the Spirit. Father, thank you so much for uh, just the great truth that you provided through the way of Christ, different than other religions, different than other thought patterns. And so, Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today that we would be people of faith, that we would trust in you, walk with you with our eyes on you. Father, we just thank you for all this and we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.